Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hristova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Christina Huaz. Christina is the Chief Investment Officer of Women's World Banking Asset Management, a subsidiary of Women's World Banking responsible for raising and investing private equity funds with a gender lens. To date, Women's Asset Management has $125 million in assets under management through two private equity funds, WWB Capital Partners LP and WWB Capital Partners 2 LP that provide growth capital and research-driven market and organizational solutions to guide portfolio companies in reaching more women as customers and workforce assets. Prior to joining Women's World Banking, CJ served in increasing positions of responsibility in Deutsche Bank's Fixed Income Group in New York and London and Merrill Lynch's Capital Markets Group in New York. CJ began her career as a military police platoon leader in the United States Army, serving in Germany and the US. CJ holds a Bachelor's of Science from the United States Military Academy at West Point and an MBA from Stanford University. She is a 2013 Eisenhower Fellow. Now, in this podcast interview, we talk about impact investing. We talk about whether we're seeing a growing understanding and an urgency to change how we invest. We talk about why invest in women, how big this market and opportunity is. And we talk about women's world banking asset management, of course, and their investment thesis and how they choose to invest. We talk about gender lens investing, measuring social impact, why transparency is important. And to finish up, CJ talks to us about how we can encourage more investors to allocate their capital for impact. This is such an inspiring conversation. It's such an important one as well. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Please note that this podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. CJ, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you on today. Thank you, Yana. I'm really honored to be here. Now, we're going to be talking about a lot of my favorite topics today. But before we jump into it, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and specifically your journey to where you are today. Well, sure. I'd be happy to. I think my journey to impact investing and gender lens investing is rooted in many ways in my childhood. I was raised by parents who immigrated to the U.S. from post-war Europe. They were very much marked by the injustices of authoritarianism and the war that they experienced as children. And so I grew up uh, in the 70s and the 80s with a real sense of gratitude and obligation that was passed down to me because I had the privilege of growing up in the United States Much of my extended family was in communist-controlled Eastern Europe, really facing a lot of deprivation and economic hardship. And layered on top of that childhood experience was also the whole specter of the Cold War and the sense that this great American freedom and opportunity and way of life was all under grave threat. So I feel that probably sounds a bit familiar, although from a different context. 
But for me, it led to a desire to serve and to give back. And at the time, given the threat of war and, and the example of service that I'd had from my family members, it inspired me to sign up for military service. So I enrolled in the United States Military Academy at West Point, and I served three years in the military. And after that military service ended, I followed a rather well-worn path to business school and then to Wall Street, where I became pretty familiar with banking and financial systems. And I might say the many ways those systems didn't work for women. And uh, I think that is also the other consistent thread in my journey. I was a girl growing up in the 70s, very conscious of the women's rights movements, conscious of the limits that were confronting me and girls and women like me. And uh, I guess I was storming the barricades a little bit in my own way. West Point, the military, business school, Wall Street. I think you get the picture. Mm. Why did you decide to become an impact investor at the institutional level and why focus on emerging markets? Well, it wasn't so much waking up one day and saying to myself, I'm going to be an impact investor, in part because we didn't have all that terminology yet, but it was rather just following my path. After several years on Wall Street, I really was looking to get back to some form of service or some form of giving back. And at the time I was working at Deutsche Bank and that organization through its foundation was making loans to microfinance organizations. And that was really my first introduction to microfinance or inclusive finance as we call it now, which is using customized lending practices and other financial solutions that will allow a company to address poverty and exclusion at its source i.e. working with the individual rather than a top-down approach of grant funding or donations. And I was really inspired by that. I was really inspired by, after working in banking for so long, how banking could really be a solution to help people address their own economic lives and improve them. And I also came to know Women's World Banking, which is where I work today. And Women's World Banking was really shining a light, particularly on the needs of women, low-income women, and the many ways that financial systems fail them. Or perhaps it's better to say the many ways that the financial systems overlook the opportunity to serve them. And at Women's World Banking, we focus on the emerging markets, because you asked. But that's not to say there's not a lot of work to do here in the U.S. and other so-called developed markets. Certainly recent events have shown a light on the degree of inequality and exclusion that's endemic in these markets as well. I'd like to talk a little bit more about impact investing and the fact that it often is associated with low returns, isn't it? And I think it's for this reason that historically we've seen less capital and investment going into impact. Can you talk us through how you think about impact? Do investors have a perception problem? Is it a lack of understanding? Or do we simply need a new type of investor who cares about returns and impact like the Women's World Banking Organization? That is a really good question, Yana. It's hard to point to one issue. There's a lot of overlap. And there's still a lack of precision in what we mean by impact investing. And it does tend to still get mixed up with philanthropy, where the perception of low returns comes from. And that's because impact investing is often 
working in the same space as you would also find donor funding. And that can create confusion for an investor who might ask themselves, well, am I investing here or am I donating? And some impact investors are in fact not seeking market rate returns. They may just be looking for preservation of capital. They're investing, but they're not seeking that market return. And that adds to the confusion. But frankly, a little bit of curiosity and inquiry and homework on part of someone looking to invest in this space should clarify those concerns. The impact investor herself will tell you what returns she's seeking or he is seeking and how they justify why they expect to achieve them. So for our own part, we are investing in finance companies that are targeting to reach low income or other excluded people. And that is an enormous potential market. And then by particularly focusing on women, we're focused on the most excluded population. So the opportunity to capture market share is actually really high. And women are proven to be good to customers. As you know yourself, Yana, we're looking to diversify the workforce and the leadership teams by attracting women to the organizations. And that's another proven success strategy. So our efforts to create financial inclusion and employment opportunities for women, which is the social goal, is also completely consistent with improving and achieving market rate financial returns. I would say the other big problem that impact investing faces is its size and performance history since it hasn't been around that long. And so it's not a safe bet from the perspective of investors who are just going to continue to invest how they always have done it. It does need a little bit of courage, a little bit of innovative thinking to invest here. And that's frankly not the way your typical institutional or private investor is set up to invest. And then I think the final problem is that we don't have a great or a consistent way of measuring impact or measuring return. But that cuts both ways. Traditional investment returns don't factor in the cost of the externalities, such as damage to the environment or communities or livelihoods or the security risks and defense costs created by those things. And impact investment doesn't have a good and consistent way to capture the risk reduction in their own financial returns. But if we just are able to do that, if we can crack that, the math will likely rapidly shift in favor of impact investing over traditional investment. I think that's so true. We tend to see more women in ESG and social impact as well compared to men. Can you describe how an impact investor might think differently to an investor who does not consider impact in how they invest? How does their worldview differ, for example, and why is this important? Well, I do think that women think differently and tend to think more holistically about a lot of things in particular, but also about investment. And so I think they are designed in the way they think about investment to be good impact investors because they can have their focus on more than one single metric of success. So in some ways, it's not surprising that we see women in this space, but I could also, I could point to different causes for that. It might be simply that women are hardwired to process more information and pursue multiple objectives simultaneously, and that makes them particularly suited to impact investing. Or possibly it's because women often bear the brunt of those 
things that impact investing tries to address and so are more intimately familiar with the problems of inequality, environmental degradation, poverty, and they're consequently best placed to see, identify, and invest in the solutions. Or possibly it's because women have been so markedly excluded from traditional investing. They make up only 10% of all private equity roles, for example, that possibly they've thrown up their hands and started their own industry of investing, and in effect, a better one. So whatever the reason, women are leading in impact investing, and I find that to be a good thing, and I hope we hang on to our leadership role here. Yeah, it's so, so important. And well said. Are you seeing a growing understanding or an urgency to change how we invest, given what's going on in the world right now? I would certainly say there is a growing understanding and a growing urgency. We see more regulation, especially in Europe, around ESG, environmental social governance requirements for investors. Another really important development is the idea of blended finance. We see some incredibly innovative thinking coming out of the United Nations and bilateral aid community, where this community resolved jointly that the capital it could deploy would never be sufficient to address the goals they've set for themselves, the sustainable development goals, and that therefore they needed to bring along the much greater pools of money controlled by private and institutional investors to invest alongside them. And the innovative thinking came when they decided that they could use their resources to reduce the perceived risk of investing in these impact goals because they recognize the private sector does need to achieve market rate risk-adjusted returns. And until you can say with certainty that impact investing can achieve those returns, these investors are willing to use their capital to reduce the risk or enhance the perceived returns for private sector investing. And finally, I would say in terms of the way that the industry is changing, we rarely anymore confront any asset allocators who've never heard of ESG or impact investing or even the sustainable development goals. And that's actually a big change from the past five to seven years. But honestly, there is still far too much talk and far too many excuses for why this or that strategy is not a fit. And there's far too few checks actually being written to really start to make meaningful change. And we'll talk more about how that can change. But why invest in women? You, you touched upon this a little bit already. It sounds like such a simplistic question, but it's not. And it's a very big, broad topic, a very important one. Why invest in women? How big is this opportunity globally in the developed world versus the emerging markets? And for those of us out there who are new to this space and are listening to this, why should you care? Why should you care about this market? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> this is a big opportunity. It's not niche. There's an estimated 1 billion women globally who have no access to a bank account, who have no safe place to save their money. It's much more pronounced in the emerging markets than in the more developed markets, but women who don't have a safe place to put their money then are at risk for it being stolen or frittered away or pressured into using it for objectives that are not her own. And not having a safe place to save, that doesn't even 
begin to address access to loans, to small business loans, to insurance policies, to pensions or old age protection and any other financial services. And if you look across the board on these financial services, we see a 9% gap globally between men's and women's access to banks. And again, it's much more pronounced. If that's the global differential, it's much more pronounced in the emerging markets. What is the opportunity here? Researchers have tried to unpack this in many different ways, but some of the data I'll give you. Research has estimated that 80% of all small business lending goes to male-owned businesses. But it's also estimated that 40% of small businesses are women-owned. So men's businesses are getting funded at twice the rate of women's businesses. The women's businesses really form an important backbone of economic growth. And that translates, if you're a lender, into a really big opportunity. McKinsey estimates that up to 28 trillion could be added to the global economy just by engaging women at the same rate as men. And another statistic, Bank of New York and the UN Foundation estimated that $330 billion could be added to global banking revenues just by closing that gender gap I described. Consultants Oliver Wyman, they came up with some figures that insurers could collect another $500 billion in premiums just by writing insurance policies to women at the same rate as they do to men. And then finally, as by near and dear to your heart, 30 billion additional dollars could be earned by lending to women small business owners at the same rate as men. We've seen in our own portfolio companies that those companies that serve the greatest number of women borrowers have the highest growth in earnings results. We also see their women's portfolio have one to 3% lower default rates and that women have a 5% higher customer retention rate, meaning it's easier to keep customers you've acquired and easier to cross sell to them. So it's really a valuable business opportunity to focus on this sector. But beyond these big revenue and return numbers, really the other reason we should care is that women are shown to invest their surplus. So if women have economic control and if they have surplus, they will invest that at a far higher rate than men in children's education, in healthcare, nutrition for the family. All of this has massive knock-on effects for economic growth and also for national security. That's phenomenal. I mean, there are so many reasons there it seems ludicrous that we're not seeing far more money going into these markets, but that's why organizations like Women's World Banking is around and doing phenomenal work. CJ, you're the CIO, the Chief Investment Officer there. I'm really keen to talk specifically now about your investment thesis, what you invest in, why invest in the developing world, and any other specifics that you think are relevant for example, what's the average size of your investments? Sure, I'd be happy to address that. And maybe a little background on why Women's World Banking got into the investing business in the first place, because 
Historically, Women's World Banking is itself a non-for-profit organization that seeks to help these microfinance companies around the world. And now, as I mentioned, we call it inclusive finance because they're offering much more than microloans. And it's a much bigger industry than just traditional microfinance in terms of access to financial products and services for excluded populations. But Women's World Banking has been around since the 70s and has really been more of a technical assistance provider, a skills developer, an organization builder, and most recently an expert on how to reach women with relevant products that they need, and an advocate at the levels from government on down on how to set up best practices, regulations, et cetera. Why would an organization like that set up an asset management company? Well, what we found about a decade ago, a lot of these traditional microfinance organizations were growing. They were becoming systemically important in their markets. They were seeking to diversify the products they offered, so start taking deposits, not just making loans. And that was requiring, first of all, regulation by the, the financial regulators, the supervisors in their countries. And that in turn was also requiring, as they were growing beyond donor capital available to them, they needed to bring on more private capital and they needed to have basically loss absorbing capital at the bottom of their capital stacks. And so they were transforming, they were privatizing, they were bringing on shareholders for the first time. And we noticed that coincident with that, we saw a 20 percentage point drop off in the women they were serving as percentage of their total borrower or client bases within two to three years of transformation. And we further noticed that there was not a single investor out there investing in these institutions that actually had their eye on continuing to serve women particularly. And that was our call to action. So that's why Women's World Banking first got into the business. We decided, look, we need to be that investor. There's got to be somebody at the board table in the ownership group that is focused on continuing to serve women. So our investment thesis is that we invest in these innovative finance companies that have good ideas to reach women. Right now, we're focused in the emerging market, as I've said, very much because of the extreme need, but certainly this is a investing strategy that will translate to all markets. But when we've identified these innovative finance companies that are focused on reaching excluded people, we guide them, we invest in them, but then we guide them with research, data-driven research and advocacy, as well as product design and user experience assistance to help them figure out exactly how to capture that sizable market share of financially underserved women. What do women need? How can they reach them? How can they attract them as customers? And we also provide the research and organizational design guidance to help them gain a competitive edge in attracting female talent to all parts of their organizations. So if they have an edge on the competition, both on customer acquisition and talent acquisition, they will outperform as well in financial terms, all the while closing that gender gap in access to finance and to good jobs for women. Why is it important to be a long-term investor in this space? We are trying to really change what 
that organization is focused on and help them change their processes to understand their target market, to understand how to attract women and appeal to their needs or address their needs. It's a bit of a long-term play. We look to be working with the institutions we're investing in for about five to seven years. And we start and continue our advocacy right from the beginning. So our investment strategy starts with negotiating the terms of the investment upfront and committing the institutions that we're investing in to certain gender performance. We ask them to commit to working with us on this research, what we call these women's market and organizational gender assessments. And on the basis of that market research that we bring and recommendations on how they can approve their outreach to women, we ask them to come up with action plans. Here's the steps that this organization is going to take to reach more women both as customers and as employees and leadership. And those action plans have to have metrics, so performance indicators attached to them so that we can see as we go along over the horizon that we're investing in, quarter after quarter, are we making progress? Is it working? And then we do ask them for very detailed gender disaggregated data so that we can be monitoring not only are they reaching, are they acquiring new women customers, but are those customers being retained? What is the average loan size that a woman gets versus a man? What is the repayment rate they're seeing among their women customers versus male customers? And we're also looking at that gender disaggregated data in their employment uh, employee bases as well. So, you know, how many of the new recruits are women versus men? How many women versus men were promoted? What is the pay of the average pay of women versus men? And again, we're trying to design a great place to work for women and see women having equal access to opportunities and leadership. So that's how we hold the organizations accountable. And the data also tells us important information that we then can use as board members and shareholders to guide those companies and recognize where the information they have about women, women customers, women employees can help them solve operational problems. Can you share then how you think about making the initial investment decision? You've listed out a lot of key criteria and metrics that you look for with your existing portfolio of companies. Before you decide to jump in and commit the investment, what's the process you go through? What are the sort of top three criteria you look at? Sure. I think we'd look fairly traditional in a long way of identifying which institutions or which companies we want to invest in. I mean, we are looking at innovative potential market leaders. We're looking at companies who are offering either loans for micro businesses or loans for small businesses, and we don't have to go into detail on the difference, or institutions that are doing specialty lending, like potentially agricultural lending or affordable housing, or they may be offering uh, insurance or pension products or payment products, but always with a focus on reaching populations who would not otherwise have access to these kind of resources. And then we look at 
traditional indicators. Is this company likely to grow? Do we like the management? Can they be successful? Do they have a competitive advantage over other players in the industry? What's the vision? How digitally enabled are they? Because it's a really important consideration now if you're investing in finance. But then the unique lens we bring to the institution, we don't have particular metrics around women at the outset. We'll meet the company where it is, but we do test their willingness and ability to become a leader in reaching women and employing women. That gets tested throughout our diligence process, our research of the company. But one of the key indicators is, are they willing to sign up with us on this investment strategy that I laid out? Will they commit to creating a gender action plan and committing themselves to these reporting metrics, et cetera? Because we can really invest in any company and turn that focus to women. And every company can be a benefit from a gender diverse workforce. That's very powerful gender lens investing. That's essentially what we're talking about. And it is still a new term. And I think it's worth maybe sharing how you define gender lens investing and what does that look like on a practical level? I love the fact that gender lens investing is a term of art now and that there are so many investors who call themselves gender lens investors and are focused on this and the fact that the market makes it important for that. Traditionally, Gender lens investing means one of three ways of investing. The first being that you're looking to invest in gender diverse organizations. So for example, organizations that have good representation of women on the board or in senior management teams. So that can be in any industry, but you're looking for gender diversity in the workforce or in the leadership teams. The second typical way of gender lens investing is to invest in women-owned businesses, which is fantastic because women-owned businesses need more capital. The third type of gender lens investing that we talk about is investing in companies whose products or services particularly meet the needs or preferences of women. And these are all really important areas to direct investment dollars. But in some ways, it's also only the beginning because this is just about choosing what to invest in. You're you're basically stock picking. But at Women's World Banking, first of all, we like to say it's all three because we're looking at gender diversity. We're looking to invest in women-owned businesses through our investments in the companies that finance them. And we're investing in products or services that are particularly designed to help women But we also go beyond just that portfolio construction. And we think about how as investors, as long-term investors, we can influence our portfolio companies to continually improve in how they reach and serve women as customers, and also how their workplaces create employment and leadership opportunities for women. And we find we have so many tools to do that as an investor, as I mentioned, from negotiating those gender commitments up front to requiring the reporting, but also taking steps like designing senior management pay packages that consider gender diversity objectives. So if you want to have your bonus, your full bonus, you've got to deliver on gender diversity. Nothing focuses the mind more than incentives. (laughs) 
So if you're aligning <laughs> incentives to gender equality or diversity, yes, it does get a lot of focus, I find. Now, I'd love it if you could talk us through one of your portfolio companies or investments that you have made and how this is potentially a success story. Sure. The success story that immediately comes to mind is the one that we've just very recently actually sold. So we've completed that investment. It was an investment in a Tunisian. Traditionally, it started as a microfinance company, but we and uh, part of the Women's World Banking Organization, one of our network members. But at the time that we invested, it was going through this transformation that I talked about. It was getting a license. It was moving beyond just microfinance, doing more small business lending, agricultural lending, looking at insurance. And yeah, they were looking for investors and perfect example of how we wanted to direct our investment dollars. So we have just sold this company to a local Tunisian insurance company that particularly wanted to partner with it to increase access to insurance products for these traditional low-income populations that they serve. We're happy to leave it in their hands. It's a local investor and can create ongoing value for the company's customers. For us and for our investors, the sale resulted in a 27% annual rate of return for our fund and doubled the money that we invested in three and a half years. So by all accounts, a very good financial return. But importantly, we also, through our advocacy and guidance, this company continued to successfully lend 50% of its total loan portfolio to women clients, even while that loan portfolio itself doubled. And as I mentioned earlier, at the beginning, at the outset of when we were investing, we saw an inverse relationship between rapid growth and the percent of women that are served. The company also maintained its nearly 50% women workforce throughout our holding period, despite the fact that it had become regulated by the government and it was bringing on private investors for the first time, which, as I mentioned, is another breaking point we see for women's leadership in this industry. And this is a particularly impressive result considering it's Tunisia, it's in the Arab region where women's engagement in workforce and society lags even the poor global showing. And these successes, they have come about through constant advocacy and the actions we take as investors and board members. And it's, as I mentioned, rooted in a lot of data collection. So for example, we see time and again in our portfolio and we point this out to the company and the boards that women customers are repaying their loans better, but they're only receiving half the loan sizes that the male clients are. And we point this out, it creates inquiry and process revamping when people consider that we're under lending to our best customers. And so as a result of this type of advocacy, we've seen that loan size gap across the board in our portfolio is decreasing and has decreased now by half since we first started investing. You know, we've also shown in another case where a company was losing a lot of its high quality employees to the competitions, their best employees were getting poached. We pointed out that their female employees have a higher retention rate than their male employees. And that really caused the company to take a careful look at how to groom their female employees for these key positions, for these critical P&L positions. And there's a board resolution to try to fill half of them now with women. So that's the power of the data and the advocacy that we can bring as investors. 
As you say, that's the power of the data. The data doesn't lie. I'd like to talk about the measurement of impact. You have touched upon this a little bit, CJ, but it's worth honing in on this now. Why is it not always easy or straightforward? How can we make this easier? And I'm obviously asking the question because we do want more investors in this space. We do want more money, more capital flowing into the space. So how can we make it easier so that it does attract more of these investors? That's definitely our goal. We have set our social performance targets as simply as possible. What we're looking for is we would like to increase the percent of women clients that are served by every major product line that a portfolio company offers, moving it up towards 50%. If they're at 50%, we're happy. Let's make sure we don't drop down below that. And if we get to 50%, Let's just maintain. But in the meantime, if a company, for example, is lending to only 2% women-owned small businesses, our goal is to turn that dial up as far as we can and to do those things we can do to reach more women-owned businesses. And then similarly, we are looking to increase the percent of women's participation in the operating staff, management teams, and boards, again, towards 50% or 35% for management and boards. And this is purposely designed to be fairly simplistic and countable. We look at the gender disaggregated data on many other measures as well, but that's where we're saying this is our target. The problem is that impact isn't always countable. And certainly, environmental degradation that didn't happen is hard to quantify. And it gets even more complicated when you need a control group to show what would have happened without the intervention, for example. But just because it's hard to quantify doesn't mean it's not critically important. And it, it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. We have to look for proxies to make it easier. And the more agreement that we have on what those proxies should be, in different industries, the more that we can compare performance from one intervention to the next, and also start to compare performance of impact investing against traditional private investing. On the 31st of October, Elon Musk tweeted, if the UN World Food Program can describe on this Twitter thread exactly how $6 billion will solve world hunger, I will sell Tesla's stock right now and do it. Why is transparency important in measuring impact and how do we do that? Ah, uh, yes. Elon Musk, he does like to stir things up, doesn't he? <laughs> While I hate to make this all about Elon Musk, he does illustrate two big problems that we do confront. First of all, as I've mentioned, there's far too much talk and far too little check writing. So I would like to see Elon Musk sell those stocks and actually invest $6 billion in addressing world hunger. But this is also a perfect example of the double standard that gets applied to impact investing and to women's endeavors. And what I mean by that is that I'm sure that Elon Musk couldn't tell his first Tesla investors exactly how he was going to build a fully electric car or exactly how he was going to get to orbit for his SpaceX investors. He sold them on a vision and he raised billions of dollars. 
but then for him to take to Twitter and suggest that the World Food Program has to lay out exactly how it is going to end world hunger in order to raise any money, I think is a double standard. And frankly, it's not what the World Food Program actually said it would do with the six billion, but we'll set that aside for a moment. Through his Twitter, he painted it as pie in the sky somehow and not worthy of serious consideration. And that is a double standard. And especially coming from an entrepreneur who knows exactly how this works. As an entrepreneur, you try something, you miss, you refine, you pivot, you try again. But that double standard is also applied particularly to women entrepreneurs and investors all the time. So somebody looking at a woman's enterprise is going to pour over her numbers and her projections and apply all sorts of haircuts and ask very detailed questions before even considering an investment. But if the same plan is presented by a man, chances are he'll get a pass for being just really smart and visionary and gee, I like him and he reminds me of me at that age. <laughs> That's not just me talking, this is like research having studied these and how women's businesses get evaluated relative to men's. And I think it's really important to appreciate that. I think it's very important as an investor to check your own bias. And women are every bit as guilty of this, disturbingly, as men. But back to your original point, the reason why impact measurement is so important is not to lay out exactly how we're going to get from point A to point B, but rather to hold our plans to standards and to be able to evaluate how we did. And if we didn't hit our targets, to find out what went wrong and what we can do better. Because the point is, you don't have to have it all figured out up front. You just have to be measuring always to know how you're doing and to be able to see what's working and what you need to do more of. Very wise words, EJ. I absolutely love your response to that. I'd like for you to look 10, 20 years from now and share what you envisage will be the impact of your work. I love that question, Yana. We will have closed the gender gap in access to finance and the financial industry will have a balanced workforce. Women's businesses will be funded at the same rate as men's. The way we really see making progress to that is that if we can close that gender gap in financial inclusion, one portfolio company at a time, if one company at a time, we can develop more gender balanced workforces. Once those gains are made, they won't be reversed because the performance will also be there. And then I expect we'll see viral adoption of these best practices until gender equity and access to finance and access to workplace opportunities becomes normalized. So powerful. Now, how do we encourage more investors to invest for impact and invest more money into companies or initiatives which leave the world a better place? That is my final question. I would like to see asset allocators having more incentives to move away from doing what they've always done and to be incentivized to start doing what needs to be done and what will have high rates of combined social and financial returns. I do think regulation has a role to play. But we also have to be able to quantify impact better so that we can adjust all investment returns for positive or negative impact so that we're really comparing apples to apples. 
and oil and gas investment shouldn't just be able to say they've returned X percent without subtracting the contribution to greenhouse gases in the environment. And impact investing as an industry also has to grow and offer more opportunities and track records to potential investors. If individually, we all immediately become more courageous and inspired with our own investment dollars. And if we seek out investment opportunities that do have a positive social impact and take back control of our own investment decisions from the so-called professionals who are not making investment decisions that align with our values. Lots of food for thought and very, very inspiring. CJ, I want to thank you for your time today. I'm in awe of the work that you're doing and the work that your organization is doing. And music to my ears, hearing what you see the impact of your work in 10 to 20 years from now, I think we need to be bold. I think we need to be courageous and need to be taking those very confident strides towards achieving exactly as you outlined. So thank you for everything that you're doing. And I hope that we get to catch up soon in person because I find your work so, so inspiring. So thank you again for all your efforts and for your time today. Thank you, Yana. It's an honor to be here. And likewise, thank you for the platform and the important light you're shining on women's access to finance and investment. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.